Great. Uh, that poem to me is something that always touches me. I can't read it because I always cry. Um, but I think it speaks to the very real experience that refugees and a lot of immigrants go through in order to reach safety. Um, and I remember thinking about that poem, holding my daughter at night one night and just crying, thinking, I would do anything for her. I would do anything. That's exactly what these people are doing. I'm already going to cry. Um, so I want to tell you guys a little bit about me and why I care so much about this issue and why I'm talking to you today before we start. So I am in Lisa Sherman Nicholas. If you don't know, my parents have been missionaries for Otter Creek for 30 years. I grew up in Guatemala. I'm half Guatemalan, half American. Guatemala is a country that is ravaged by civil war. They had decades-long civil war um, between the government and leftist guerrilla forces. Um, the uh, government brutally murdered about 200 indigenous Mayan uh, people, and my parents kind of lived in the middle of this before I was born. I was old enough to remember the signing of the peace treaty, um, and I, I remember like where I was and how it happened, and feeling, you know, that this was finally over. And so. Because of that experience, I have a real passion and interest in armed conflict and the experience that people go through as a result of it. So professionally, I used to work for Amnesty International, which is the world's largest uh, human rights organization. I was based in London and also Senegal. In London, um, I worked on health and human rights, and I was able to assist the Syria researcher at the time to prepare a report on torture in Syrian hospitals. This was before it was an official armed conflict and the government was leading a brutal opposition um, of peaceful protesters. Um, then I worked in Senegal, which is a Muslim-majority country. We lived across the street from a mosque, heard the call to prayer five times a day through my windows, walked by that mosque every single day to and from work. Um, and I worked on a number of West Africa issues. And later I worked in uh, New York at the United Nations, working to advance the children in armed conflict agenda at the Security Council. And we covered 15 countries, and Syria was, of course, one of them. Um, most, of, all, most of the countries, if not all of the countries that we worked on, were um, countries where there are a large number of refugees fleeing. Now I'm in Nashville, and I work as a policy manager at the Tennessee Immigrant and Refugee Rights Coalition. So we don't do resettlement ourselves, like World Relief or Catholic Charities, but we work for um, policies and laws that advance um, the rights of immigrants and refugees. Or in, sadly, the case of Tennessee, we're quite often on the defensive and working to defeat laws that harm refugees and immigrants across our state. So I want to tell you a little bit about um, this picture. This was in December at the Legislative Plaza. And as you know, after Paris, there was a huge backlash against refugees um, because of rumors that some of the attackers were Syrian refugees. Those rumors have since been disproven. Um, and a woman who works at a costume shop in Nashville here felt like the current climate was not reflective of her and her friends and of the welcoming and hospitality that they wanted to show refugees. So she put a message on Facebook, you know, asking people to come out and peacefully um, hold a vigil in solidarity with the refugees um, across the world. It got way more support than she could handle, so she asked us to help her out. Um, and we attended on this cold night. It was such a wonderful demonstration of love and compassion and hope. And for me in my career, it was one of the more moving experiences that I've had um, that night. It's this one. So rather than showing you really sad pictures of refugees in horrible situations, I want to tell you about three of my friends who also happen to be refugees. So the woman on the left is Miriam. And she um, is a Rwandan refugee who's actually resettled in Nashville when she was 17 with her family. 
Um, her, we met through our dads who connected us um, through email. I was living abroad at the time and she was living here. And we were both looking for jobs in each other's fields. So she's been incredibly helpful for me in helping me find the job I have now and networking um, and giving me advice about my resume and tailoring it to the Nashville context. She actually worked for World Relief for a time here in Nashville, resettling other refugees like herself, um, and then eventually worked for World Relief in other states. And most recently, she was um, determining the refugee status of refugees in Chad. So she was working a lot with Darfuri refugees. Um, the woman on the right is Drajitsa. We met through work. She is a Bosnian refugee. She was about 12 or 13 when she moved back to the United States. Her and her family didn't speak any English. Um, and her parents, her dad used to be a banker and her mom was a stay-at-home mom. And I remember her telling me about how hard it was for them because they couldn't speak English and they had to get jobs as janitors because they didn't have you know, any other way. And how hard that was for her dad you know, to have had such a um, good job back home and to then go work as a janitor, but how hard they worked and how proud they were of the life that they were able to create for their children. Um, Dee took my place in New York when I left, so she is now um, advocating at the United Nations Security Council, and what better advocate than someone, a child, who was actually impacted by armed conflict. Um, the thing about Dee that I want people to know is that she's incredibly warm and friendly. When I was first in New York, I didn't have a lot of friends, and she threw me a birthday party on her roof. Um, she's been a, a wonderful friend. The couple on the bottom, Janine and I work together in New York as well. She's actually South African, but her husband, Mohammed, is a Somali refugee. He came to the U.S. when he was 17. Um, he followed his brothers and sisters over here. He is the goofiest, friendliest person you will ever meet. Um, he's incredibly generous. They've hosted me numerous times in their apartment. Um, when I was pregnant and I needed a place to stay because our apartment was going through some repairs, um, they gave up their bed and slept on the floor so that I could sleep on the bed. Mo graduated from Harvard. He um, has an MBA from Harvard. He just recently got a grant from GE to do a sustainable energy project in Ghana. So he's, he's, they're all amazing. Um, and they've touched my life. And I know that if you know some refugees, I'm sure they've touched your life as well. So as this quote says, you know, I asked my friends if I could share their stories. And they were, of course, very happy to because being a refugee is a badge of honor and um, they've gone through incredible struggles to get to where they are um, and they've overcome things that most of us can't even imagine. Um, I've included some facts about refugees. The most important thing to remember is that refugee, refugee status is a legal determination. So not anyone who's fleeing armed conflict is a refugee. It's actually based in international law. Um, and in order to be resettled, you have to have an interview where this is determined by a legal officer. So a, a little bit about the resettlement process, because that's been the most controversial in the news lately. Resettlement is the absolute last option. First, you want refugees to go home voluntarily, voluntarily repatriate. Second, um, a lot of refugees make a home in the country of first asylum, so usually a neighboring country. Um, and third is the resettlement process. And this is really when there's just absolutely no, no safety for them, either at home or in the country of first asylum. Um, only 1% of the world's refugees are resettled, and the US only takes one-tenth of that. So in order to be resettled, you have to meet certain criteria. You, the people who are prioritized are survivors of torture, women at risk, elderly, people with particular physical or legal um, uh, pr protection needs. 
And the screening and vetting process, which again is some of the most controversial things that are going on right now. I don't wanna go too much into it because it's quite in depth and what I really wanna get to is later, but the important thing to know is the US has the most rigorous screening process of any country. Refugees are screened more than any individual that enters our country. Um, they, uh, it takes 18 to 24 months. And if there's any doubt about their background or if there's no information, they're denied entry. So the other important thing to know is that refugee status or resettlement is a pathway to citizenship. So refugees have every legal right to be here and they enjoy the same protections that we do. And most of them become US citizens. So my three friends that I told you about earlier, they're all US citizens now. Um, and our refugee program emphasizes self-sufficiency. So much so that the travel cost for a refugee to America is actually a loan that they have to begin to pay back six months after they're here. So in Nashville, refugees have been traditionally welcomed, especially by churches in the community and across Tennessee. Um, we resettled 1,600 refugees last year. There's about roughly 60,000 across our state. Um, that's remembering that refugees have every legal right to be here, so they move across state lines, just like all the rest of us. Um, a lot of, there's a huge Kurdish population in Nashville, and so a lot of Kurds from across the country move back here to be around their friends and family. These are the countries where we've received most refugees. Of Syria and refugees, we've only had 38 since 2008. Um, since the 1990s, refugees have contributed 1.4 billion in revenue. If you guys have heard some of the arguments against refugees is that they are um, t taking our resources, they cost us a lot of money, and actually that's not the case. The interesting thing about this number is this is from a fiscal note attached to a bill here in Tennessee. Um, and the bill was written in such a way that it was calculating the cost of refugees and it was calculating generations upon generations upon generations. And we were able to go in and said, well, if you're gonna calculate the cost, you need to calculate the contributions. So 1.4 billion is just one generation uh, contribution and the total number of costs was about 650 million, but that was for multiple generations. So 1.4 billion is actually much higher. So the current climate, Tennessee is undergoing a very fast demographic change. Since the 1990s, we've grown five times. I think my math is right there. Um, in the 1990s, we saw immigrants mostly from Germany, UK, and Canada. So people that look like us who mostly speak our language and share our cultural identity. But in 2011, um, that changed and it was mostly people from Mexico, India, and El Salvador. So people who don't speak our language and don't look like us and might do things a little differently than us. The current population rate, and sorry, I didn't get a chance to update these numbers, but it's about 5%, um, which is significantly low um, for the national average, which is about 13%. Nashville is at 12 to 13%, by the way. So even though our percentage-wise of immigrants is pretty low. We have one of the fastest growing rates of immigrants, of foreign-born population to our state, 67% um, right behind South Carolina. So obviously with these fast demographic changes, it's understandable that people who've never met someone that's not like them might feel a little uncertain, a little anxious. You know, they've never met a Muslim and all of a sudden there's a mosque being built in their community. It's understandable that they feel um, insecure or threatened because all they might know is what they see on Homeland or the news or um, other TV shows like that. 
Um, it's understandable that the woman in the grocery store who's never heard Spanish all of a sudden feels like her culture, her language is under threat because she's hearing languages around her. That's all perfectly understandable. But the problem with that is that there are political forces and agents trying to exploit our fears, our natural anxieties about people who are not like us. Something that is not new, it's repeated itself throughout history. Um, as you can see, all kinds of immigrants have had um, negative um, rhetoric against them, including legislation that is harmful. And I don't know if you guys heard this story in the current um, Syrian crisis. It's something I just learned about. But apparently, there was this ship that embarked from Nazi Germany full of about 900 Jewish refugees. Um, they were aiming to land in Cuba to seek asylum, but they were denied. And then they circled around Florida trying to get permission to dock. Um, but they never received permission, and they had to return back to Europe. I think France, Belgium, and another country took them in. Um, eventually, about 250 ended up dying in the Holocaust. And the reasons why we didn't take them in at, the sa at that time is exactly the reasons now that we're talking about Syrian refugees. That we had just come out of the Great Depe Depression. People were nervous that they were going to threaten, there was going to be an influx of refugees and it was going to threaten our economy, um, that it would take people's jobs away. There were also scares about Nazi spies being on amongst these refugees and what that would do to our national security. So these are some of our worst instincts when, it, when we're in the face of others, of people who don't look like us, people who are different than us, right? And these are um, what a lot of politicians and national organizations are trying to exploit and bring out the worst in us. I think as Christians, we're called to overcome these instincts and to show compassion and love and hospitality and to seek truth. So these are some of the um, pictures from Nashville. These were two mosques that were vandalized um, before Paris. I think it was 2008 and 2010 um, here in the state. This was a picture that was retweeted by a commissioner um, in Coffee County. Um, so since 2011, uh, Tennessee has actually been a hotbed for anti-immigrant, anti-refugee, and anti-Muslim legislation. There have been national organizations, like I said, trying to exploit those natural instincts that we all have. Um, and they've been driving um, the agenda by introducing legislation that is really harmful. So since 2011, we've had about 100 um, bills that are negative towards immigrants. And luckily, we've been able to defeat a large part of them. Um, this legislative season, we have five anti-refugee bills that we're trying to defeat um, and a handful of anti-immigrant and anti-Muslim bills. So these quotes are some of the things that you've probably heard in the media about Muslims and about refugees. Um, you know, I'd want you to take a time to read it, right? We had about 31 governors across the country, including our own governor, who said that we should halt or suspend refugee resettlement. Um, by the way, he's since come out and said that now that he's learned about the vetting process, it's actually a very good process. Um, so some of us might be really discouraged about the current political climate. Some of us might be angry. Some of us might be frustrated or disappointed or feel apathetic or powerless. But instead, I think it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to learn, learn the facts, learn about the resettlement process, learn about um, what refugees have to go through to get here. It's an opportunity to interact. 
So if you see someone out in the community who's struggling to speak English or who might be Muslim, you know, say hello, smile at them, and be friendly, try and help as much as you can. It's an opportunity to serve. So we learned um, in Josh's sermon today about um, World Relief and some other organizations that provide um, services to refugees. And if also speak to Susan Reese, because I know she does a lot of volunteer work with uh, Muslim refugees. Um, it's an opportunity to donate. So a lot of the resettlement agencies are always looking for things for refugees like couches or sheets or clothes because they come here with absolutely nothing. Um, and it's an opportunity to advocate. So the church is really good at serving and donating, but I think sometimes we struggle with advocacy because we're afraid of entering the political mess that is um, ongoing and we're afraid of politicizing the issue even further, or polarizing the issue. But I want to tell you about um, a current example of someone who saw an opportunity in a volatile situation. I know we're Church of Christ, we don't follow the Pope, but I like, really like this example. Um, so in this small country called Central African Republic, which probably most of you have never heard of, there's been a three-year-long war between Christians and Muslims. Um, Muslims have almost been wiped out of the capital, Bangui. There are about 120,000 Muslims before. Now there's less than 15,000. So in this very hostile, very violent climate between religions and um, that's being uh, polarized and politicized, the Pope visited last year. And one of the first things he did was he took his convoy straight through the Christian armed opposition groups and into the mosque. He took off his shoes, he entered the mosque, and he met with the imam. And he delivered this me 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 message using the word salam, which is Arabic for peace. So he showed respect and he showed compassion and he reached across the aisle um, to his Muslim uh, friends and brothers and sisters who were undergoing some unimaginable violence at the hands of people who um, are associated with the Christian religion. So why is advocacy important? So I know some of you might be scared of it and you might just be unsure about how to get involved. Um, but advocacy is an opportunity to reaffirm our values as Christians. Um, it's an opportunity to bring civility to the discourse and to show sol solidarity with the marginalized, the oppressed, and the stranger. It's also an opportunity to shape the narrative, one from where the media is saying that we're not welcoming, um, that we don't want refugees, to one of hospitality and compassion for people who are suffering unimaginable um, you know, things. Um, it's an opportunity to organize around a vision of inclusion where everybody gets to come to the table, everybody gets to participate, everyone gets to engage in the civic, cultural, and political life of our, of our country and our state. Um, it's an opportunity to isolate and disempower extremist voices. So some of those nativist and xenophobic um, national organizations that have found fertile ground in Tennessee, and it's an opportunity to say to them, this is not who we are. And there's simple ways you can get involved in advocacy. So first, um, we have a petition that you can sign that we're going to be delivering very soon. It's about welcoming refugees. Um, then you can sign up for our action alert. So I will be, um, every time there's a bill up for a vote, I will be sending out an action alert that explains what the bill does, why we don't like it, and then gives you a model letter which you can write to your legislature. Um, and, and tell them that you know, we don't want this bill to pass or that we want to be more welcoming. 
If you don't feel comfortable with that, you can just write on your own. Um, I know some of you have already done that. I think um, Chris wrote a letter to Governor Haslam, I believe, um, telling him you know, that we wanted to be welcoming. Um, and if you have any questions about how you can get involved, how you can advocate, you can always email me. So that's what I want to say so far. So if you guys have any questions or um, in the direction you want to take the discussion, I'll be happy to answer. Yes. You showed a graphic with six states that are destinations for immigrants right now. Um, three of those look pretty obvious, California, New York, and Texas. Mm -hmm. um, the other three, what, what is it about Tennessee, Alabama, and South Carolina Oops. that makes them so attractive? That's a good question. Those populations. So the low cost of living across the state, I'm not talking necessarily about Nashville because I think the cost has gotten quite high. Um, the availability of jobs, the fact that other immigrants have settled here. So like I said, the Kurdish population across the country is coming to join other Kurdish people that already live here. Um, I think the, the values that we traditionally have of being welcoming, there's a lot of services and opportunities here for refugees and for immigrants. When, when, when I look at my Facebook feed, which is like half to the right of me and half yeah. to the left of me, um, on the one side, I see people talking about Tennessee and, and heard you talking about it as a place where there are a lot of anti-immigrant bills <coughs> being introduced. Mm -hmm. But on the other side, um, it's, also, it, it, it's also a state that prides itself on yeah. being welcoming to people from other places. Mm -hmm. um, is, would, would, it, would it be accurate to characterize Tennessee's situation in that the welcoming nature that we have prided ourselves on, whether it's immigrants or just people from out of state, has also created a, a situation where we've just got so much that it's hard to deal with. I, I mean, is, is the are the issues that we're having at the government level because we're getting so many people in that it's just that sort of natural tension of adding all of these population groups? So I think we're a welcoming state, yes. We, we talk about being welcoming, but I think a lot of times those of us who want to welcome aren't um, as loud as the groups who don't want to welcome. And so that's sometimes where you see that tension. And while I think we have, you know, an Im a rapidly growing immigrant population, I don't, I definitely don't think it's more that we can handle. Um, the individuals who are pushing a lot of this legislation are people who are known to be xenophobic and nativist um, and Islamophobic. Um, Which wouldn't be a problem if we weren't getting the influx. Because there's, there's no point in being xenophobic if there are no aliens. Right. I mean, our demographics are definitely right. changing. Um, that's something that's always gone on through our history. Um, but I don't think, I think it's the way they see those immigrants, because refugees and immigrants in general actually contribute a lot to our economy. Um, undocumented immigrants even have contributed billions of dollars in local and property taxes. Um, so I think part of it is just the natural anxieties that people feel and the reaction to that. So, but I, but I mean, the answer is definitely not to say, okay, let's not have any immigrants come into right, our no, state. Right, I'm not saying that, I'm just, I'm just saying that, looking at that, that, that a xenophobic legislature in Nebraska would get less attention than a xenophobic 
legislator in Tennessee because they're not going to Nebraska, they're going to Tennessee. Yeah. So it's, it's an issue in Tennessee or maybe it's less yeah, an issue sure. in Nebraska. Mm -hmm. okay. Any other questions? Um, it seems like most people are concerned or scared of the illegals that are being screened today. Mm -hmm. And it makes me think of like Papa, who's mm -hmm. the, you know, such a great person, wants to come in and she can't, you know, I, I just can't understand why she can't yeah. come over here. Yeah. I mean, Absolutely. So, I mean, the yeah, other thing that screening, yeah, definitely. And I mean, the other thing that I mean, at our organization we do um, work with undocumented migrants as well. And part of the problem is that our immigration process is so difficult um, for people to get access to come to our country. It's almost impossible for people to come in um, legally. So they often choose other ways to enter. Yeah, I know. It breaks our heart. Any other questions? One of the things that, um, when this was when this was really going around social media, one of the things that I was uh, frustrated by, and my my experience is probably kind of similar to Brian's, you know, mm -hmm. where you know I've got a lot of folks that I'm friends with on social media, like you, um, and I've got a lot, you know, who are who are you know, more more fearful, you know, probably less knowledgeable and more fearful. And when you see these discussions and these long threads, a lot of times somebody would would throw out some of what you have shared about, you know, we cannot allow our policy to be dictated by ignorance and fear and suspicion, you know, where it's not warranted, that, that we have, especially among Christians, you know, that we have, you know, these scriptures about, you know, welcoming and hospitality and when there's a stranger in your midst and the example of Jesus and all that stuff. And one of the things that was infuriating and heartbreaking to me is when there, there's somebody that I know who is a good church person, you know, do anything for you, but, you know, where the rubber hit the road, almost came out and said, I don't care what's written in the Bible. I want to take care of my own. Yeah. I don't want to live in next to me. Yeah. Um, and, and I've thought about that, and I've talked to people about that, and I've puzzled over that because I cannot understand how somebody could say, I don't care what the, the values are, you know, that are in the gospel. I'm willing to disregard those when my security feels threatened. Yeah. Um, that's, I think it's much more reasonable to say, you know, here's how I feel, and I recognize there's tension, you know, with what I'm called to and what I'm feeling, and, and I'm struggling with that. But that's not what I heard. What I heard was, I don't care. Yeah. Don't quote scripture to me. I don't want those refugees yeah. next to me. I'm sure you've heard some of that mm -hmm. too. It's hard for me to know how to respond when, when the the fear is that deep seated. Yeah, no, for me as well. It's been really difficult being back in that environment. I thought, quite honestly, that I would be bored working in Nashville compared to what I'd done before. But it has been nothing <laughs> but boring, um, <laughs> uh, which is you know not a good thing because it means that there's a lot of work to be done. Um, but I don't know, what do, do you guys have any experiences, positive experiences of how to change that conversation from fear we to... We have um, life groups here that have actually partnered with um, refugee agencies to adopt a mm -hmm. family. Um, so that process could be, we've, we've worked with Somalian families, with Egyptian families, um, my sister and her life group has most recently worked with a family from Iraq. Um, 
Mm -hmm. um, and that involved not just like donating, and I mean, it started with getting their apartment ready. So getting donations, meeting them, making sure they could get to all appointments that you have to have if you come into the country. But mm -hmm. what most people don't realize is after six months, the refugee agencies typically yeah. back out and these families are on their own. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of what makes Tennessee and any of these other country, these states is that they have a community. But what happens is you can get into your community and never leave it. Mm -hmm. So you don't assimilate into American culture because you're kind of stuck in the little area that you know. So if you have Americans who break bread with you in your home, who come to your child's birthday party, who awkwardly figure out the social norms that are okay and not okay, mm -hmm. and you can laugh together and have relationship and go to the hospital with them when someone's sick and advocate for them to have an interpreter to help them, then you have a relationship. And it's not us and them. It's I mean, we have a hard time with our neighbors who look like us and who are in our same socioeconomic status and who grew up and know what our norms are. But to have to do that with people who are our neighbors, um, I think is what changes it and builds that bridge. So mm -hmm. it's easy to talk about all this when you don't interact with anyone and have opinions when you've never even actually like spoken or tried to speak to someone from another country and watch that struggle. Mm -hmm. Because it's not freeloading, it's not easy, it's hard work and it's yeah. terrifying. So I, I, I would say there, there are pockets of people here at Otter Creek who are actively involved in wanting to do that. But it's, but it's hard. I mean, it's, it's not easy, and sometimes no, it's uncomfortable. It's yeah. so like even my sister has had this relationship with a family for a year, and she called me and she said, we haven't seen them in about three months, and they've invited us to come over, and it's going to be hard, and I'm, I'm struggling with it. And so mm -hmm. we talked about it. You know, do we maintain these relationships? Yeah. But it's okay to say it's hard. Yeah. It's okay to sometimes say, I don't really want to do this. I'd rather stay home than go try to interact with this family, but that's reality. I mean, yeah. that's true about life groups some nights, too, yeah. or church on Sunday morning. I mean, we all struggle with that. So I would just like to say it's hard, but you can do it. And, and this is our community. It's our world. I don't know. I think mm -hmm. we should. That's, what that's a good point. I think. Well, and when I was talking to Ryan and my husband about this, and we were talking about how refugees are expected to have a job after six months of being here. We were thinking, well, when we moved to Nashville, we didn't have jobs. It took us each four months to have a job, and we speak the language, and we have an extensive network. Like, I can't imagine being told, okay, don't, you don't speak the language, you don't know anybody, and in six months, you have to be employed. And figure out driving yeah. the system and what is socially acceptable. I mean, yeah, it's... Oh, it's hard. Anybody else? So why do you think that Christians are so afraid of advocacy? Why do you think I'm having a hard time getting Christians to um, write to their legislature, to, um, to tell our elected officials that we want to be welcoming and that we want policies that are welcoming? You're talking about Christians or are you talking about Church of Christ? Christians mm -hmm. in general. Well, I mean, we, we, in Tennessee, and, in and Nashville. And the, reason, the reason that I ask that is because Churches of Christ have very have historically been more about individual action mm -hmm. than government action. I mean, there's there's a strong yeah. thread of thought in Church of Christ history that you don't even vote, you don't even get involved at that level, and and, and so there's there's a natural, well-rounded suspicion there, um, and, and and I think that probably extends into other groups too, even though 
there are other pockets of Christianity that have traditionally been much more much more socially active as opposed to individually. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Great question. I think the answer is uh, a lot of church effects do not consider the evangelicals will get politically active on abortion. So it's not like we haven't seen people get active. Uh, I think since 9-11, uh, people like me, uh, so I'm throwing my people under the <laughs> preachers, have not, I mean, there are so few preachers in the Church of Christ who, who we even talk about this. So few churches in our design. Yeah. So we, uh, elders, this, we haven't, I love what you're doing in this, we haven't properly connected Okay, here's the gospel, and here's what's happening in the world. Now, what do you want to do? Uh, I think that's different than just saying, well, we got to educate people. Mm -hmm. I think it's a, a little bit deeper to say there's a there's a gospel imagination about how we see the world fundamentally that is the disconnect for people. Because this is my personal view. It's pretty easy to make the case to be pro-life the way that I read the gospel. I would lean more towards a more Catholic, holistic understanding of what we mean when we say that. Uh, but that's taken generations to cultivate in the American consciousness amongst some people. Um, but 9-11 set that conversation back at least 25 years. Mm -hmm. and, like, and you were very gracious, understandably so. We've never known what it's like to have war on our side. We're one of the few countries in the history of the world that don't truly understand having another Entity or um, but the beauty of immigration and why we are the most diverse country in the world—it's forcing our hand to keep going back to the gospel, to Preston's point. And when people say, "I don't really care," then you get to say, "Well, you go to church, but you might not be a Christian." Bless your heart, or whatever you, you want to say. That. <laughs> you, do, you do have to ask them. Like, okay, you signed up for Team Jesus. Do you want to join the different team? Because you know. There's different teams out there. You, you can buy the jersey and the hat. And um. So this is a gospel moment. But until we continue to do and talk about stereotypes in 9-11, uh, people are just kind of zombie mode, shackled by fear. The last thing I'll say, because you guys all have to hear me talk a little bit One of my closest friends in interfaith work in Nashville is uh, the top pediatric scholar Amir Haran. Amir has spoken about it several times on Wednesday night. Some of you have been in those Wednesday night classes we've been. And Amir lives a mile from our building right here. And I absolutely believe this. He's a devout Muslim. I consider myself a devout Christian. I unapologetically talk to him about Jesus and he talks about the Quran for me. So this is not watered down like liberal. <laughs> Much or whatever, but I absolutely believe that I understand the kingdom of God better because of my relationship with Amir and had Amir and I not become friends so mm -hmm. And that's the, that's the secret sauce of interfaith. It doesn't water down your faith, and we all see kumbaya. It actually clarifies what's really important in the first place. And it's not a cappella or instrumental. Right? It's how many thousands of refugees are going to come in the next month. It's like that stuff mm -hmm. that should keep us up. Yeah. Okay, sorry. Yes. Um, I'd like to take general exception of what Josh said. 
We have had war on these soils. 150 years ago, we went to war. The battle broke out in the barracks. <laughs> we haven't had an invading country. Well, the, well, the point is, the point is, the point is, for 150 years, that has fostered and, and contributed to a continuing racism in this country mm -hmm. that we're still battling and will not be changed in my life. Yeah. I agree. Yes, question. Um, I think it's interesting, too, that after September 11th, for the next seven years, we had George W. Bush, who was one of our people, telling us this is not about Islam. Yeah. You know, this is not about Islam. Islam's a religion of peace. This is about Muslim extremists. <clears throat> and then in 2008, Barack Obama, who was not one of our people, you know, became president, and all of a sudden the, the distrust and suspicion and fear went out the roof because we didn't have one of our people in, in a position of authority and leadership telling us, do not take this out on your Muslim neighbors. Mm -hmm. and these, are, these people are part of the fabric of America. What we started hearing from, from our leaders, political and religious people that are conservative and white like us, was that fear-based rhetoric, mm -hmm. you know? And, and, and now we've got it to the extreme, you know, with folks like Donald Trump who are just doing nothing but exploiting fear. And then you've got, you know, Mr. Falwell of Liberty saying, this is my guy, you know, this is my guy. And so what we're hearing now, you know, when, when W, you know, was when we were listening to him, I think that kind of kept us a little bit more calm. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we, we don't trust Obama. Uh, and the people that we do trust are, are not saying what W did. They're, they're carrying that fear and suspicion. Yeah, absolutely. Right. That's, I, I had never thought of that that way. That's, that's a great point. One of the other things that I've seen in regards to fear is that both sides are so engaged in the propaganda battle that they tend not to recognize or validate the other side's fears. For example, um, one of the opposition arguments to settling refugees is that there might be terrorists in that group. And I think that's a, that's a legitimate concern. But I also think, especially as Christians, that you gotta do that anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that, but but you, have, you have to recognize that if we let in thousands of refugees, all it takes is one sleeper to slip through the crack and you've got a national headline making story. Mm -hmm. But I've seen so much from the other side that no, that, that doesn't happen. They're all peace loving. You know, that, that you don't recognize that, it, that it's a legitimate fear. Mm -hmm. And that, yeah, it could happen. And you know, yeah, as Christians, you've got to be, you, you, you've got to be willing to take that bullet or that shrapnel or you know, whatever, because it's more important to be the story that needs to be told mm -hmm. than it is to keep everybody else out. I mean, we, you know, we, we have uh, the commission to go into all of the world, and now we've got the world coming to us. And we, we have this, this situation where we can, you know, we, we, we can be the gospel, we can be the better story. And if we're, and the only way that if, if you're looking if you're looking at the battle side of this, which is, I mean, there's there's a real battle there. 
Um, the only way that you win that is by being the story that everybody goes, well, I want to be part of that story. I want to be part of the other story. Mm -hmm. But if you don't, if you don't recognize, if you don't, if you don't recognize the legitimate fears on both sides, both sides are never going to trust each other and yeah. have to take each other seriously. Yeah. So at Turk, we do have this thing called Welcoming Tennessee, which is, um, and we've recognized that we need a civil public space to be able to acknowledge those fears and address them, not specifically about refugees, but about changing demographics. And so we um, have this kind of similar presentation where we go into community centers and churches and create a safe space for people to be able to talk about immigration, um, but also to give them with some facts about how immigrants contribute to our state. Um, so yeah, so that's a good point about acknowledging people's natural fears. Although I do think that the chances of a terrorist entering through the refugee process are so small that it's not worth worrying about. But I understand and, that and, people... And, and, and I agree, <laughs> but, but still, all, it, all it's gonna take is one. Yeah, yeah.
wish we could hear Lucian and Tricia Simpson tell their story because for a number of years they worked with one family, taught them English, taught them enough American history that they could pass a citizenship test, got them social security, got them insurance, uh, got them jobs, uh, uh, housing, and keep, you know, once a week, twice a week, they're still answering the telephone and lo and behold, the lady has breast cancer and now, so all of this is not easy. No. It takes real commitment and the Simpsons have got it. They have done it. And they tell me, you know, oh no, he's lost his, or oh no, she's, <laughs> and they're telling me the struggles with it. They keep right on working with them, yeah. uh, loving them. And they're, it's just a dear, sweet friendship. Mm -hmm. I, it may have been 10 years they've been working on the yeah. That's awesome. And I don't think an advocacy has to be all figured out because there are hard with, with increased population, we have struggles in our infrastructure regardless mm -hmm. of where they're from. Yeah. So I think people are wary to advocate because they think, well, but then what about this? So I can't advocate because down the line. And I think being able to advocate for things also means acknowledging that we'll have to figure things out. Yeah. I mean, that that's... That's a good point. Yeah. And so they're good stories and bad. So it's not all roses. I mean, I mm -hmm. think if you go into it, you may have a bad interaction with someone just like you have an interaction here at church that you think, well, they were rude, but that's not all about our grief. Mm -hmm. So I think if you have an, an interaction with an immigrant that is not pleasant, that's not, again, we tend to want to stereotype. Yeah. And I think that's going to happen. So acknowledging that that happens is okay. Yeah. I mean, let let yeah. me in, in, introduce you sometime to the best hair cutter in Nashville, who is a Muslim. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> who came from uh, Bosnia years ago, years ago, whole family. <laughs> well, big thank you to Lisa. Um. <laughs>